everyone. Welcome back to the Gaining Health Podcast. I'm very excited to have Dr. Andres Acosta with me today. He is a physician scientist, obesity and diabetes expert, and serial entrepreneur. He is faculty at the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota, and focuses his research on gastrointestinal physiology to understand the complexity of food intake regulation and obesity. His laboratory uses a combination of genetics, physiology, pharmacology, proteomics, metabolomics, and gastrointestinal and brain imaging to understand food intake regulation and to modulate them for the treatment of obesity. He and his colleagues at Mayo are using cutting edge techniques to also understand the pharmacotherapy and pharmacogenomics of obesity and how this information can be used to optimize the care of patients with obesity. His goal ultimately is to treat and ultimately cure obesity, which he considers, and I totally agree with him, this century's greatest health epidemic. Dr. Acosta's work on individualized obesity therapy aims to identify the right therapy for the right patient while minimizing side effects. So I am so excited to have you here with me today, Andres. It's so good to see you as always. Thank you for being with us. Thank you, Carly. I'm delighted to be here in your podcast, uh, Gaining Health, and um, it's quite an honor to receive your invitation and I'll be part of this. So uh, I'm looking forward to this conversation and uh, not only this podcast, but all the podcasts that you have been producing. So thank you awesome. for the invitation. Well, thank you so much for accepting the invitation. So clearly you have a huge passion for truly you know, understanding appetite and obesity and food intake. So tell me, where did this passion come from for you? Where did this start? Yeah, you know, I, 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 this is a great question and, and I was thinking about it. Um, and it's, sometimes people have a story about a family member or their own history with, with obesity as, as a disease. And I don't have such, you know, interesting story. My story is, is rather boring, I like to say, but it's probably more significant because when I was going through med school, I was seeing how we are dying from cardiovascular disease. And our generation is going to die and be more affected from cardiovascular disease. So I immediately said, we need to solve the problem with cardiovascular disease. Mm -hmm. But to solve the problem with cardiovascular disease, you need to solve the problem with diabetes. So for a period of time, I really want to do type 2 diabetes and thinking that's the problem we need to focus. But if we go deeper into the problem of type 2 diabetes, is obesity the underlying root cause? Mm -hmm. So I decided to focus my career in not only understanding obesity, but being very ambitious. And of course, this is a field effort, try to cure it. So in our population, we can go back to saying our population is living more than the previous generations instead of living less than the previous generations because of obesity. So I think it's our responsibility to really tackle this problem and understand it and address it as much as we can. And that's why I decided to take this in, in as many of us, including yourself, in our shoulders to really try to solve this problem. Yeah. And at what point did you recognize? Because I'm sure part of your medical training was not obesity management. And so many of us come in with this idea that it's, well, it's just a matter of calories in, calories out. And so what first triggered this idea for you that it had a lot more to do with these gut hormones and all of these different things that you're studying? What, what kind of triggered that? Yeah, so the, the, what that triggered was um, I was going through med school and I said, I need to understand more about obesity. And as you said, in med school, we get very little education about obesity. 
But I decided to go and uh, take a step further and go and do a PhD in understanding gut-brain access and how the gut talks to the brain through these hormones. And when I was going through med school, there was all these publications that are starting to come up with the GLP-1s and then other hormones like PYY and oxyntomodulin being published in key journals. And then Baeda got accepted when I was finishing uh, for FDA use for diabetes. And I say, this is the future. Mm-hmm. And I decided to start working in 2016, in 2006, in my PhD on gut-brain access, understand how these hormones talk to the brain, talk to our taste, and regulate our sensation of fullness. Yeah, very cool. Yeah, so it's interesting how we all come about finding out about these hormones in different ways. For me, it was kind of through the field of bariatric surgery. And that's when I was like, oh, well, if we know all this and these changes occurring with bariatric surgery, you know, what can we do from a non-surgical perspective to affect these hormones? Absolutely. So very cool. So one of the fantastic publications that you had for your research, you determined that there were four primary phenotypes of obesity, right, that you found in your studies. So that we have the hungry brain, the hungry gut, emotional hunger, and then those people that struggle with the slow burn. So can you explain to our audience a little bit about what these four phenotypes are and kind of what the physiologic underpinnings are for each of these phenotypes? Yeah, absolutely. So we and many others and many people even decades before I started doing research have been talking about these components that regulate our our energy regulation, our food intake, and our energy expenditure. So, you know, there's a lot of controversy why obesity is a disease, but energy balance keep play a key role. And I'm not going to go that, but I'm sure one of your podcasts can cover that in the future, and I think you've already mentioned as well. So the question is, how do we address energy balance? And in a paper that is not that frequently mentioned, but I think was the, the, the baseline, the foundation for this. In, in 2015, we study all these components of energy balance. We compare against people who have normal weight, and we found that they were different in people with obesity compared to people without obesity. For example, people consume more calories before they feel full if you have obesity than if you don't have obesity. That was the paper in 2015. And in that paper, using machine learning, we were able to classify obesity in 11 groups. But the reality is that when I went back to the practice and I was seeing my patients with obesity, it was very difficult to not only explain these groups to patients with obesity, but then translate that knowledge that was acquired by machine learning into the practice. Mm-hmm. So what we decided to do is say, well, we need to simplify that, get it out from that machine learning black box and put it on the practice. And what we did on the paper of obesity is we said, we're measuring all these things of patients in patients with obesity, a battery of tests that takes about 10 hours. And then we noticed that it was very heterogeneous. The variability of this, it was huge, right? And we see that with our patients. There are patients who say, Doc, I only eat very little and I feel full. I don't eat much. And other people say, you know, I go for seconds and thirds in every meal and I still don't feel full. So by studying these things in a laboratory with the same protocols, we studied 450 new patients. And what we did this time that was different is we decided to do what we healthcare providers do all the time, is we decided to assign carbs, completely arbitrary, like someone one day saying, Creatinine, the normal value in my lab is going to be 1.118 mm-hmm. or 1.8. We decided to know, well, 
for calories to fullness, meaning satiation, it's going to be normal for a woman, it's going to be 894, and for a man, it's going to be 1104 calories. And we decided to use those cutoffs as normality to tell us who has what. And then once we designed what's normal and abnormal within obesity, using normality tests, we decided to classify obesity and put these people in these four key buckets. So we went from the 11 groups in the initial paper to four key buckets that were defined with specific cutoffs. And in these 400 people, we saw these four key phenotypes that explain 85% of obesity. So first it's important to say 15% of people do not have any of these phenotypes or they don't make the cutoff for any of these phenotypes. And then we have these four phenotypes. So let me just spend a minute explaining them. Hungry brain. The scientific term is abnormal satiation. Abnormal satiation is when people consume more calories before they feel full. Usually they go for seconds and thirds. And the reason why I call it hungry brain, and people like this, but also being criticized because of this, is because the term satiation and satiety usually gets confused. We say we eat to satiety. No, we don't eat to satiety. We eat to satiation. Satiety is for how long we stay feeling full. So if we read the literature coming from Professor John Blondell, University of Leeds, he talks very clearly about separating satiation and satiety, and he calls them postprandial satiety. So we took the same concepts from him, and we defined the second group, hungry gut. The scientific term is abnormal postprandial satiety. People eat normal amount of foods before they feel full, meaning they have normal fullness. Mm-hmm. But then within an hour or two, their satiety is not working. So they start feeling hungry again and they want to go and eat again. So the problem lies that the gut's not sending signals to the brain. So it's still gut-brain communication, but the problem is more on the gut. So to walk away from this satiation and satiety and all the literature and confusion that even ourselves, we have got it wrong. Mm -hmm. We decided to call one hungry brain and the other one hungry gut. The third group is emotional eating, emotional hunger. Most of the people think that obesity is a disease that is driven by hedonic eating behavior, that we eat because of our feelings. These folks eat and look for food for either positive reward or negative reward. I feel great, I want to eat something. I feel bad, I want to eat something. They look for food to cope with life, good or bad things. And then the last group is folks with abnormal energy expenditure. And we have so many patients, Carly, and you probably have this the same amount of patients who says, Doc, you know, my problem is my metabolism. Yeah. And we're like, yeah, not more unlikely, right? Well, these folks do have a problem with their metabolism, right? Yeah. They're not burning enough calories. And there's so many different ways of calculating energy expenditure. It's a field that has had a lot of decades of studies. And we have measured this and calculated against those predicted measurements. And these folks are very low, lower than predicted. So they have abnormal energy expenditure. So these are the four key obesity phenotypes. And this is how we came up with it. Yeah. Thank you so much for that great explanation. And, and I love having these core, you know, these four core phenotypes, because I think it's much easier to explain to patients also, because I mean, really, we have probably over a hundred different, you know, obesity phenotypes, but you know, to be able to group it into that and also to recognize that there are a lot of people who have overlapping phenotypes, Mm -hmm. right? Who have more than one phenotype. And it's been very helpful for me in practice too, to kind of take that concept 
and then ask questions to my patients about their eating behaviors and their levels of satiety and appetite to kind of determine where I think they kind of fall into and then to try to kind of individualize and personalize their their treatment for them. So that's kind of what I do in clinical practice. So when you identify those four phenotypes in your study, you also use different therapies, right, for each of those phenotypes. Can you talk to us a little bit about the, the pharmacotherapy and the treatments that you might use for the various phenotypes? Yeah, absolutely. So um, the, the beauty about obesity phenotypes um, is that not only can it help you explain the pathophysiology of the disease and talk that with a patient, but yeah. we've also done a lot of studies to explain what they exactly they mean. But also the most important thing that I think is important on how we translate this to practice is how do we use these phenotypes to improve outcomes? As we know, it's very expensive to come up with a new medication, device, or surgery. It takes a lot of time, a lot of innovation. So we just need to select better patients for it. So since 2015, we have been publishing papers, the majority of them randomized placebo control trials. But there are small studies, pilot studies, two weeks, a month, you know, two, three months studies randomized placebo control trials. And using all that information, we actually created a hypothesis that's saying we think we can use these phenotypes in order to understand and improve the outcomes of the patients. So we brought all that knowledge of those randomized placebo control trials into the clinic. And what we decided to do is we decided, well, let's collect the data and let's assign these patients who go to a phenotype clinic or patients go to a non-phenotype clinic and see what are their outcomes. So how do we pair the patients who are going to the phenotype clinic? If you have hunger brain, we gave them fentamin to extended release or locarcerin. Locarcerin is no longer in the market, but when we did the study, locarcerin was still on the market. For hungry gut, we gave them uh, GLP-1s. The one that we had in the market then was liraglutide 3 milligrams, Saxenda. For patients with emotional eating, we gave them uh, propylene naltrexone, Contrave. And then for folks with um, uh, normal metabolism, we gave them a low dose of pentamine to stimulate their metabolism, as we thought was going to help them with their metabolism. So that's how we pair the medications. We did that in 84 patients. And in our control group that we did, it's patients who were assigned to um, uh, the non phenotype clinic or at the standard weight management clinic, and those medications were given in a shared decision-making based on the physician-patient conversation and what the physician thought was the ideal thing for the patient. And I'm sure there was also a component of insurance helping decide what medications. Now, there were some controversies on the study. They're saying that it was randomized. It was not randomized. The groups were randomly assigned because when you call a clinic, and I'm sure when I call a clinic that there's more than one provider, you know, a patient might be assigned to one patient or another. And as we explained on the methods of the paper, you know, that's how we define randomly assigned. But it was not randomized with an allocation as we usually do this. We did the previous studies. Regardless, it was a clinical study, real-world study, pragmatic study, as we mentioned on the paper. Patients on the phenotype group lost 79% of patients, lost more than 10% of total body weight loss, compared to 34% of the patients. Yeah. So we can really improve the percentage of responders. And this is first-generation medications. 
So the average of patients who lose more than 10% was 34% on trials. We were able to increase it to 79% of patients. And when we look at total body weight loss, it was 9% on patients who receive a medication in the non-phenotype group versus um, uh, 16% or close to 16% on patients who were in the phenotype group. And of course, there's a bias because of one group were told about, were measured their phenotype and were told their phenotype. But um, that actually only helped my patients and our patients who were on the phenotype group. And, um, and we're excited about that bias. But uh, of course, long-term randomized control trials are needed. But in the meantime, we think we can really help our patients with phenotypes. Yeah. And I think those outcomes are so fantastic. Close to 16% total body weight loss. And like you mentioned, these were with not using some of these newer medications that are out mm-hmm. there now, but these are with medications that on average in their studies show about, you know, five to 10% weight loss. So Correct. you guys were showing significantly more weight reduction by using the phenotype, which mm-hmm. I think is, is really awesome. And, and I love the direction that this is going in this personalized medicine for patients with obesity. Um, and then what are your thoughts also on combination therapy for those patients that do have more than one phenotype? Um, are you all, do you use that with patients or what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, that, that is, uh, that's a beautiful question. And uh, in this study, we exclude the patients who have been in more than one medication for both groups. Um, but as you said, um, 27% of patients, so a third of the patients will have more than one phenotype. And that tells you, tells you that even if you want to break down obesity due to this complexity, it's still so complex that a third of the patients will have more than one phenotype. And about 9% of patients will have more than three phenotypes. In the about 1,000 patients I've seen, I've only seen one patient who has four phenotypes. So, um, but what do we do when we have them? And I have done different type of things. In Sometimes I try to find what's the most predominant phenotype mm-hmm. and tackle that one first and see how the other phenotype will evolve. On other times, when I see that both phenotypes are there, predominant and very present, I actually, what I do is I do double therapy almost from the beginning. So I presented at um, at, uh, Obesity Medicine Association a couple of cases uh, um, last year, and uh, one of the cases was a patient with hungry gut and hungry brain, and I did dual therapy, semaglutide, Qsemia, at Wygovidose and Qsemia, and the patient was able to lose um, uh, you know, 20% of their body weight within the first six months um, and very impressive results. So that's the art of medicine that we providers need to be talking and that trials will never tell us. Right. But when we have patients with dual phenotypes or with multiple things, we just need to tackle the, most of the problems. But it's, that's how we do for anything else in medicine, right? Right. Exactly, exactly. Because I get that question a lot. And I'm like, well, what would you do if somebody has hypertension or diabetes and, you know, they need an additional medication? And especially when we're thinking about it in this terms of the different phenotypes, different areas of the body where the physiology is not working correctly in terms of appetite, we, you know, oftentimes need a multi-pronged approach. Um, And Curly, I like to use a beautiful example that to me is one of the simplest examples to explain when I have the multiple, you know, what do we do with multiple phenotypes, is I tell, what do you do when you have a patient who has very high levels of LDL and very high levels of triglycerides? Yes, we can just give them a statin, wait for the LDL to come down and see what happens with the triglycerides. But we can also target both of them. Right. 
And if the patient has triglycerides that are so high at a risk of pancreatitis and poor complications from that, and LDL is also high, sometimes don't even measure because triglycerides are so high, maybe we need to do both, right, at the same time. Yeah. So that's the art of medicine that we providers practice every day. Yeah, absolutely. Awesome. So switching a little bit to lifestyle. So you also published a proof of uh, concept study recently on phenotype tailored lifestyle interventions for obesity and cardiometabolic risk factors. So can you tell us a little bit about that study and what you found on the, the lifestyle components? Absolutely. Uh, and we're super excited that that just came out last week at uh, the Lancet Clinical Medicine. Um, but first, I need to tell you how we came up with that. Great. Um, uh, we were at Obesity Medicine. I showed for the first time in, I think, 2019, the beginning of 2019, our work on phenotypes. You were in the audience. Yeah. So many people, including yourself, approached to us and said the simple question, what about diet? And I was like, oh boy, we haven't even thought about a diet. What is the diet for each phenotype? We were so focusing on meds and devices that we're not even thinking about. So I got back on the plane and I was thinking, what about diet? What is the diet? What is the diet? Got the whole team together and, you know, large multidisciplinary team, dietitians, exercise physiologists, wellness coaches, psychologists, psychiatrists, as physiologists, endocrinologists, everyone on the team is saying, let's brainstorm on a diet. So that was triggered by us experts in the field at OMA telling us, what about diet? And said, we need to have a diet. So to make the story short, we came up with a working hypothesis, and that I'm excited that just got published. So here's the working hypothesis. We decided we're not going to invent any new diet. We're going to take everything that is already published and try to fit it, and that's, I think, probably the best explanation, into the phenotypes. Mm -hmm. So first, no discussion about macronutrients, or not in very broad terms. So if you're a low carb or a low fat, I will let you be whatever you decided to be in life. I'm not <laughs> going to talk about that. So let's put that aside. <laughs> Second, let's use published data. So we went to the literature, and a couple of my fellows went and reviewed every single study that have had some sort of mechanistic explanation of what works with what. Here's what we came up with. If you have a hungry brain, we're going to give you a volumetric diet. And back in the early 2000s, volumetric diets were trending. So a volumetric diet, a lot of lettuce, things that it makes you feel very full because mm -hmm. these problems have a problem with fullness. High fiber, because that fiber, extra rich fiber makes you feel full. Like you think about a big bowl of granola, how full you feel after that. Low calorie. And then we want to use time-restricted feeding because these folks usually don't feel hungry. It's only when they start eating that they can go for seconds and thirds. So if we keep their brain off, they will stay off. So time-restricted feeding, intermediate fasting, have lunch and dinner. We told them breakfast and lunch, but the majority of patients selected lunch and dinner. Mm -hmm. So they skip breakfast. And then if we took out their recommendation for hungry brain for exercise and behavioral therapy, we basically told them nothing. We said, yeah, try to get 10,000 steps because every time everyone should do that. Hungry gut. Hungry gut, we said, these folks are feeling between, hungry between meals. We need to make them feel fuller. A lot of nice work coming from Australia showing that if you give a pre-protein shake or snack, that triggers your release of 
hormones such as GLP-1 and PYY and makes you feel full longer and affects your gastric emptying and a lot of very nice objective measurements of prolonged satiety. We brought that here. We said high low-calorie diet with a pre-meal protein supplementation or snack. Can I interrupt Three you real quick? Can I ask you, so how long before the meal do they consume this pre-meal protein or snack? About an hour before your okay. main meal. Okay. So we said, if you like, because these people are snackers, right? We said, okay, a snack, but closer to your main meal. And has to be a snack with protein. Okay. Great. Um, standard exercise, standard behavioral. And then for the folks with emotional hunger, we said, okay, low calorie, whatever you want of calorie-wise, low calorie. Standard exercise and, and for behavioral, we put them together only with folks with emotional eating, and we create a 12-week plan in which we focus only on emotional eating. So we took the usual learn manual developed by uh, in Yale for pre-bariatric program, and we adapted, bringing a lot more concepts about food addiction. We brought a lot more concepts about emotional eating, and we reinforced the fact that we were talking about emotional eating with these folks. And then the last group, the slow burn, we broke a paradigm, which I'm really excited to talk, is that we said to these guys, you guys are going to go to the gym. Because years of and decades of work saying that the best way to improve their metabolism is to do increased muscle mass. And work coming from Pennington telling us that muscle mass is the best predictor of resting energy expenditure. So we told these folks, you guys are going to go to the gym. You're not burning enough calories. We want to increase your muscle mass. But we also needed to help them with the diet because we wanted them to drop their low-calorie diet. But we said, if you're exercising, you're going to have a, like most of us who exercise do, after exercise, protein supplementation. Now, we were not high-protein diets, so that has to be clearly. Even though I have to only talk about proteins, I have ignored talking about the other two macros. We did not recommend high-protein diet. We just said, here's how we're going to use the protein in these specific four groups. So. Currently, we did the study, again, non-randomized. I know people love to see randomized trials. But the first time you do something, you have to be, you don't know what you're doing. You need to train people. You need to learn people. So we did, we took 84 um, patients or 81 patients. We gave them a standard diet, Mediterranean. Everyone got lifestyle intervention. Everyone got behavioral. Everyone got everyone in our control. And then once that group completed, we train our team a completely separate team that was not on the brainstorming team. We train our brain, a new team, to deliver the phenotype diet. We call it the phenotype. Mm -hmm. And then they went and delivered this to the next 84 patients. And we saw that, yeah, as exciting, you know, the weight improved 4% versus 8% or close to 8% at 12 weeks. Mm -hmm. But as anyone who's been doing diets, it's like, yeah, fine. 8%. Yeah, it's a low-calorie diet, right? Both of them were low-calorie diet, by the way. But this one got a little bit better. Patients were blinded to their phenotype. But the key thing that is what excites me the most in this proof-of-concept study is that their phenotype-defining variables improved on the patients with the phenotype approach. Okay. Because usually what we say when we talk about diets, ah, oh, diets don't work because you have physiological and metabolic adaptations. And the physiological and metabolic adaptations, we see them early on, on on weight loss interventions with diets, and they perdue 
in time, right? They stay longer in time. I think we follow patients for almost now a decade and we see how those metabolic adaptations will remain. Yeah. What it was fascinating to see with this novel approach is that when you pair these known interventions to the right phenotype, these metabolic adaptations are less severe or are lesser. And the simple one to see, if you guys go and pull table three of the paper, the reduction in resting energy expenditure is lower in the whole cohort. And now we're trying to work on the next study, on the next publication, which will be just looking at each of the phenotypes and not only look at their these phenotype-defining variables, but also at their unique metabolic signatures. But clearly, that's what excites me right now about this proof-of-concept study. Maybe yeah. we are having an idea of how to fight back these metabolic and physiological adaptations that has been one of the biggest challenges in the uh, lifestyle and diet space. Absolutely. I mean, that's the struggle, right? It's not so yeah. much how can we help patients lose weight, it's how can we help them keep it off and not be fighting their own metabolic adaptations when they lose weight. That is definitely the biggest struggle. And so that's very exciting that you're seeing those changes because again, it's not just about the weight reduction, it's keeping it off long term. And so yeah. if you can minimize that adaptation, that's huge. Very exciting. That is awesome. Wow, you have been doing such interesting work. I think it's just so fascinating, everything that you do and just so applicable to what we're seeing every day with our patients. So tell us, what, what else is in the pipeline? What are you working on next? Well, here's the, the reality. The reality is that we know that the way that we phenotype, first of all, we know that every single provider tries to phenotype our patients just by talking with our patients. And you do it, and I've been doing it, and we all try to do it. What we have started doing, you know, in all these studies is we try to do a little bit more objective and measure things. So going from the conversation in a good history and physical with a patient to objective measurements. And we do that in pretty much everything in medicine. Everything on medicine, we try to be as objective as we can, right? Yeah. I can palpate a mass in someone's stomach, but I will not be comfortable sending them to, this, to the OR to remove the mass unless I got a CT scan, right? Yeah. That's the practice of medicine that we live today. So what we did is we moved to an objective measurement. That's what we've been doing at Mayo with measuring these phenotypes. Many people around the world have started to measure these things themselves as well. They have seen the value of this. I'm super excited. Pharmaceutical companies are doing their new studies based on phenotyping, which is super exciting. But the reality is that not everyone can do phenotyping in their own practices. So we acknowledge that limitation. And for the last five years, we've been working on building a biomarker against obesity phenotypes. And the biomarker is rather simple to explain because each of these individuals have a unique metabolic signature, a unique genetic signature, a unique metabolomic signature, a unique microbiome signature, a unique proteomic signature. So what we decided to do is start putting all these unique signatures into the machine learning bucket and start developing biomarkers. So now, full conflict of interest, you know, um, we spin out a company from Mayo Clinic called Phenomic Sciences. Phenomic Sciences licensed the technology from my lab and my colleague, Michael Camilleri. And they continue building these biomarkers. And, you know, as of a couple of weeks ago, they have launched their first test against Hungry Gut. And in the summer, they're going to launch the Hungry Brain and Emotional Hunger um, 
biomarker against those other two phenotypes. But what's really exciting, and a little bit preview to your audience, is that at our uh, national meeting, Digestive Diseases Week, and on May 6, and then subsequently two weeks later at the European Congress of Obesity, we're going to present the data of a randomized placebo-controlled trial using this biomarker against liraglutide 3 milligrams. And you will say, why liraglutide and not semaglutide? Well, we did start this study before semaglutide was available. Yeah. But it's important to say that these GLP-1s are here to stay. They are very important medications, but not everyone responds well. Mm-hmm. So we have found that our biomarker significantly improves the percentage of responders all the way up to close to 78% of responders to semaglutide mm-hmm. at a 16 weeks randomized placebo control trial using our biomarker. And this biomarker is something that is simple, scalable, that you can do it at home, but needs to be prescribed by a provider. So we're super excited about this. That's what's in the pipeline. And then subsequently, we have other studies coming for other medications and bariatric endoscopy and surgery using these biomarkers. So we're super excited about what's happening. And um, clearly, the phenotypes have opened this door to understand obesity and help us improve their outcomes of patients. This is just fantastic because this is what this field needs. This really, I think, is the future of obesity treatment because right now it's kind of the wild west. You just try whatever you can. It's trial and error. And even with bariatric surgery, like you mentioned, you know, we still don't fully understand which patients are going to respond best to which treatment. So I think the work that you're doing is so exciting and so important and really just the future of, of what is possible and helping our patients with obesity. So thank you so much for all the work that you're doing. And lastly, is there anywhere that people can go to learn more about the work that you're doing? I'll make sure to put it all in the show notes, but um, where would you direct them to? Um, um, I think our publications where we try to talk, but you know, podcasts like this is the best way to, to share our, our work. And thank you for inviting us again, Carly. I, I think we're all contributing to this and your contribution is as important and significant as, as we're trying to contribute. And we'll keep make sure that we keep publishing in open source uh, journals so everybody can read our um, publications. And um, and I think uh, more to come, as I just shared with you. And we're excited about the future. And thanks for your support. Well, thank you so much for being here today. And thank you so much for everything you're doing and everything you continue to do to further this field. Thank you so much for joining us on the Gaining Health Podcast. Don't forget to review and subscribe. And if you really liked it, consider supporting us on Patreon. Lastly, if you need resources and tools to help you start an obesity management program, be sure to check out gaininghealth.com. Thank you. And we'll see you next time on the Gaining Health Podcast.